welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. I'm Drew. How are you guys? Hey, everybody. So, today, we're going to explore a section of the comic book universe that neither me or Drew are too familiar with, and seeing as how this podcast, the point of this podcast is for us to celebrate comics, we want to take as many opportunities as we can to educate ourselves on all of the different various kinds of comics that are in existence out there. So today we're going to go and we're going to do a dive into European comics. This is, uh, as I mentioned before, it's something that neither of us is uh, extremely familiar with. It's something that we want to learn more about, you know, and uh, Im- immerse ourselves in if if need be. So the specific comic that we're going to go over today is The Ink Call. Drew, would you be able to give us a little bit of uh, background information regarding it? Well, The Inkle was a comic created by Alejandro Jodorowsky and Mobius, colored by Yves Shalon. And the edition we're reading was translated by Justin Kelly. Uh, this is the Humanoids translation from 2012. The volume that we're reading today, uh, volume one, was originally published in 1980, and I believe it was originally in, in French. So this is our first time reading it. Obviously, this is a very famous work that, you know, even before we read it, we were aware of it and yeah. Uh, you know, Mobius is pretty much a legend in comics and Jodorowsky yeah. as well yeah. uh, as a writer. So it's, it's something that has always been uh, in the periphery of our awareness. I guess, I'd, yeah, like universally, I'd say most people recognize it as a classic, right? Like it's yeah. one of those books that that uh, if you're if you're really into comics and, and you care about studying and reading the great works and whatnot, the Inko You have would, to come across it. Yeah, to, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You gotta, you gotta at least read some of it. this, some of this stuff. Yeah, and that's exactly the reason that we chose it as our first uh, European comic to go over. It only made sense. Like I remember the discussion that me and you had when we decided that we were going to dedicate this week to European comics, without even going over the list of European comics uh, that were available to us, like we both instinctively knew that the ink call was just the obvious choice. Yeah. It's just too big a name. And because we hadn't read it, it just felt like we had to, we just felt like we had to educate ourselves. Otherwise, how's anybody out there supposed to take us seriously if we haven't read this one comic from 1980? It'd be like, you know, saying that we are literatis, but we ain't read no Willie Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. who is we then? How is we supposed to take we seriously? We ain't nobody, man. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this Willie Shakespeare. All I really know about Willie Shakespeare is that he's dead. <laughs> That's the one thing I remember from all my English classes in high school, college. The only thing that really stands out is that that dude is dead. He dead. Yeah. Better than a doornail. 
And you ain't going to read anything new from him. <laughs> <laughs> That's assuming that he wrote all the works that have his name on them today. <laughs> See? You did... You didn't know one other thing. You knew that there's a conspiracy that proclaims that he might not have written all of his own work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it, there's, it's, it, it's not only his plays, but his sonnets and all the stuff that he's known for, right? So he's the world's greatest plagiarizer. <laughs> yeah, he, he was Stan Lee before Stan Lee. <laughs> oof, oof. Sorry, that was a joke. Yeah. <laughs> so, um I guess we should start by giving a brief a brief description of what the ink call is about. Um I'll try to keep this as brief as possible, but it's it's basically a story about a futuristic world and it follows a I think he's like a private eye, right, Drew? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by the name of John DeFool, and it begins with us following him around on these kind of skeevy little mission, on, on one particular skeevy little mission, but what ends up happening is it kind of blows up, and he he gets caught up in these shenanigans, and as a result, he ends up getting exposed to this, I don't know how else to describe it, but like this essence, this entity called the Inkal that bonds to him. And it's one of those stories where what ends up happening is this, this the Inkal is something that's desired by various parties. So he has to go on, on the run while all these various factions and individuals chase him down because now he has the power from the Inkal to to do massive harm or massive good. Mm -hmm. Does that sound like a fairly accurate description to you, Drew? Yeah, yeah that works for me. Okay. It's not a really long comic. We only read volume one, so that was yeah. about 40-something pages. Yeah. In retrospect, maybe we could have read the entirety of it, but eh, we were lazy. <laughs> <laughs> it, wow. It you read a 600-something page book, man. <laughs> you did box office poison. Yeah. Well, I thought you were going to try to, you know, polish that turd by saying that we were we wanted to dedicate attention. It's not about quantity. It's about quality. So. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll go back and edit that part out of the recording so it sounds like <laughs> we are dedicated to we're dedicated paying, scholars yeah worship at the altar of comics yeah and we're, we're gonna pay extremely close attention to a shorter work you know so we're typically we may dedicate an episode to discuss something that's hundreds of pages long but yeah this time around we are dedicating our attention to a 48 or 40 something page comic because exactly there's just so much to, to lose ourselves in. <laughs> there we yeah, go. That sounds there good, right? Go. Way to polish that turd. Thank you, man. You, Thank you, you did a great job. Your your sleeves are just soaked in turds now. Good for you. Maybe I'll leave that other part in after all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, 
let's let's start off with uh, our first impressions of the work. What what are the things or elements of the comic that jump out at you, Drew? Definitely Mobius's artwork. That's the first and biggest thing that stands out. It's, yeah. His artwork is just amazingly detailed, amazingly yeah. imaginative and creative. Yeah. Storytelling, it, it's really strong storytelling. Like every, every page, every maybe even every panel, you know, there's something going on that is just interesting to look at. And yeah. when he draws some of the more detailed crowd scenes and splash pages... There's just a whole lot going on. You can just pour yeah. pour over it, you know? Because yeah. this is uh, set in this kind of dystopian future, in the, some kind of science fiction world. Uh, I don't even think it's planet Earth. It's some other planet yeah. where people live uh, alongside these other alien beings. Yeah. And they've got say, these gigantic buildings and skyscrapers and just right, right. tons of people packed in there. I don't even know if it's necessarily dystopian. It it feels like it could just be like I don't know. Maybe not necessarily cyberpunk, but I guess even cyberpunk is kind of dystopian or it, it is. Yeah. Dystopian. Yeah, I mean I'd say cyberpunk is dystopian. Maybe this yeah. isn't dysto- it like here's what I think. I think that the world of the Inkle reminds me of a dystopian future, yeah. but the way that it's colored because it's it's colored in these brighter tones. Yeah. Bright, sunny kind of tones. It doesn't look like your typical dystopia. It doesn't call to mind uh, something like Blade Runner, which is drenched in black uh, black and <laughs> sepia tones. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, keep going. Keep going. So because it's brighter, I think it's a little bit deceptive in tricking our minds into thinking that it, it's not dystopian but it it still kind of feels dystopian because there's like it just feels like one of those futures where everybody is crammed into these uh into this super dense kind of mega city and it feels like anytime you have that many people packed into that small of a space just bad stuff happens you know and they also live in a world in in a city where if you go underground or, or go into the sewers, there's going to be giant mutants that are going to run and try and run at you and try and kill you and stuff. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of dangers that don't exist in an ideal kind of society. You know, there's, there's rampant crime and violence and stuff like that. Just, just a lot of danger looking around everywhere. And I guess that's not necessarily dystopian, but there's also these really weird authoritarian police guys that are uh chasing him or i'm not even sure if they're police or they're just like whatever the authority is yeah they're the the authorities so it it definitely gives you the sense that this dude john defool is on the run from a whole bunch of people that are after him and there's not a whole ton that he doesn't have a whole ton of resources he can tap into in order to you know, go against these overwhelming forces. Yeah, yeah, I I totally have to agree with you. I, the the art is by and large the the thing that jumps out at you at me the most. Um, 
the creativity of the designs uh, of the technology of the various creatures and beings that inhabit the world. It's all really unique um, in, in regards to the coloring that you were mentioning that like you're right. It's it's a it's a world that's pretty saturated in a lot of really bright colors. But there's this one of the uh, scenes that leaves a pretty distinct impression on me is when he ends up in the I guess in the guts of the city at one point it's it's uh it's him tromping around uh in their sewer system mm-hmm. and it's just like a putrid green and but it's like yeah. this really vibrant putrid green you know yeah um, and that left a pretty like big impression on me I feel like this comic I mean it's definitely on the cover but it feels like within the pages of the comic itself, like this really bright yellow seems to be a really big part of the color scheme of their world, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. I read the comic on a tablet. Uh-huh. So it, it wasn't, the dimensions of the tablet aren't as big as the dimensions it was originally printed uh, when the comic was, you know, originally printed on, on paper because it's a European comic. Yeah. But, I actually spent a lot of time zooming in on different panels just to really soak in the artwork, you know? Yeah. Because everything got shrunk down on the tablet, but when you when you zoom in to the different panels, you can really see how much detail there is and all the all the line work. Yeah. He put a lot of stuff into these panels, man. Like there's a, that one splash page early on when the main character is falling down from a skyscraper. And you just see this crazy view, uh, almost like an angled bird's eye view of the city. And there's all these different uh, levels, different balconies and and different levels of uh, freeways and streets and people all over the place. It's a place where it's just one of those things that triggers the imagination and makes you wonder what it would be like if there was actually a world designed like that. You know, it's almost... Um, overwhelming to the senses because there's just so many dense structures and so many people walking all over the place and uh yeah it's just a story in and of itself like I, I probably spent more time looking at individual panels and and just admiring the detail and the artwork than I did spend uh than I was I probably spent more time doing that uh than actually reading the words and stuff, you know? Yeah. I'd have to say that I had a similar experience. Um, the words themselves, I I tended to just... I don't know how else to say it, but I rushed over the actual... <laughs> the, the art was something that required that I... Well, not necessarily required, but I, I took it upon myself to stop and, you know, uh, appreciate the details of the art more than the actual writing yeah yeah it, it makes sense uh just because mobius is he was a legend man and yeah even even in today's mainstream american comics you can definitely see the vast impact and influence he's had on people i mean there's a lot of not just uh european artists working in american comics today but even just over the past 30 years you could see a lot of his influence on a whole bunch of people. 
Like totally. When you look at uh someone like Frank Miller, you can definitely see some Mobius influence in his in his stuff. Like look at Ronin from the eighties. Like Ronin was kind of a fusion between all of Frank Miller's European influences and his manga influences and just rolled up into one thing, you know. But when I look at Ronin, I definitely see a lot of Mobius in there. Yeah. The one name that jumps out to me and you know, feel free to disagree, but um, Salvador Larocca is is one name that I th- like think of when when I imagine what his artwork looks like. Like his older stuff. Yeah, I mean, I I would even say like conceptually, it it feels like like the creatures and the beings that he draws tends to it, it has a very similar vibe to something like the Inkal, you know. Hmm. That's that's interesting. Yeah, I never I never thought of that. I think it's because when I think of Salvador La Roca now, I think of somebody who who draws kind of like Greg Land. Uh, uh. So his his style's definitely changed since the early days of. Yeah, yeah. That I've seen him. You know, I remember when he was drawing Fantastic Four for uh, Claremont. I think back in the what was it, the late late '90s or early 2000s. Uh huh. I think, yeah, maybe back then I I think I could see it more. Um, he even in his style today, I guess I would say he does have a more European influence style. Yeah. Uh, but I don't I don't really know. I couldn't really name the specific artist that I think uh, his work reminds me of, just because I I don't know enough names of European comics creators. It's I know what what, it, what stuff looks like just because I've I've looked at a lot of them, but I, I haven't necessarily read a lot of them. And the ones that I have read um, <laughs> don't necessarily stand out to me, so I, I forget a lot of people's names. Right, right. Yeah, like uh, the other um, thing that reading this comic uh that immediately jumps out at me or or uh in terms of um the connections that i was making mentally was that for whatever reason looking at it uh the the artwork and the world really reminds me of that movie the fifth element yeah you know and uh we were having this conversation before the podcast where i was i just mentioned offhand that i was looking at it and i was like yeah a lot of a lot of it just feels like that movie, The Fifth Element, with uh, Bruce Willis and Mila Jovovich. And then you brought to my attention that, hey, guess what? Apparently, uh, I wasn't the only one that felt that uh, these similarities were there because the company that publishes the Inkal uh, apparently sued the movie. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was a uh, Jodorowsky and Mobius themselves. Yeah, but uh, I mean, uh, but the the ending of the story, as as I came to understand it, was eventually the case was dropped because I believe Mobius decided to work, yeah. uh, do work for the movie, and you yeah. know to formally get paid for his work. He he did some uh, design work. Yeah. So, you know, as, as long as it resolved itself, right? You betrayed Jodorowsky. Oh. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really know the details of that either. I didn't look too deeply into that. That's just yeah. something that you can uh, learn on on the internet. Yeah. The other thing that uh, uh, that I mentioned to you, uh, another like pop culture reference was that, and I don't know, I don't know if this is because um, the the thing that I was thinking of. So okay, so the other thing that it reminds me of is uh, there's this story in heavy metal, and if you guys don't know heavy metal, I've mentioned it before in a previous podcast, but it was this animated film from i want to say like the 70s or 80s which uh which was basically an anthology of a bunch of different stories and one of the stories was uh, this uh futuristic film noir story involving a, a taxi driver and i do know that elements from that are strikingly similar to the fifth element as well. So I don't know if my brain just subconsciously made that connection. And that's why reading the Incal also made me think of that. No, uh, I think that makes sense because yeah. uh, Heavy Metal, the movie, was based on the Heavy Metal comics anthology. And Heavy Metal, the comics anthology, was basically an English version of Metal Hurlant, which which was uh, a French comics anthology that had a lot of work by people like Mobius. Yeah. So you can definitely trace the DNA all the way back down. Okay. Actually, I remember you were talking a little bit about heavy metal when we were doing our episode about Akira, the movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... Yeah, I wouldn't say it's one of my like favorite animated films, but I think Heavy Metal for like animation fans is similar to the Incal for comics fans in that for people who who watch a lot of animation uh there's an acknowledgement that Heavy Metal was or is like I I guess there's a cult following uh around heavy metal and yeah. you know there there's definitely a contribution made on their part to to the craft of animation as a whole you know yeah it's a landmark animated film yeah exactly exactly yeah. i mean it might not necessarily be something that's uh, uh universally appreciated but prior to its existence we didn't really see anything like that i guess is how i would yeah. put it yeah yeah, and I think that's fair. There's a lot of stuff that is significant and leaves a big impact and is a cult favorite, but isn't necessarily universally beloved by the masses, yeah. you know? Yeah, totally. And there's there's nothing wrong with that. I think it it's I think we've we've kind of discussed this idea several times before, but it's it's possible to appreciate the craftsmanship of a piece of work yeah. without necessarily loving it, you know? Yeah. And and to be honest, that's kind of how I felt about The Inkle, Volume 1. Like, it's something that I appreciated in terms of its crafts, yeah. its craftsmanship, the artwork, the world building, the set designs, the character designs, just 
the overall look and feel of of the comic you know it, it's impressive work and certainly didn't feel like i was wasting my time by reading it yeah but i would also say it didn't really hit me in a way where i felt oh yeah this is like one of my new favorite comics or anything you know like if yeah, yeah. if if i were looking at influential comics yeah this is this definitely has to be there you know like this is a key comic in the history of modern comics yeah but as far as a comic that i would personally want to reread or cherish over and over it's not necessarily that kind of comic for me yeah but it's it's something that i can appreciate and, and respect for what it's what its uh influence is and like yeah like just the artwork man yeah the artwork the artwork still holds up it, it's it's good enough where you can just keep on looking at it over and over without necessarily yeah. having to be in love with the story. The other thing that I'd want to mention is that, um, yeah, so like we we acknowledge that it might be something that left a great impact, but isn't necessarily universally beloved. But the the thing about that is that. I think the impact is most seen in the people from from the works of the people in the field that came after, right? So yeah. it's 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 what they learned stylistically from from the Incal. So yeah, like you mentioned Ronin by Frank Miller. So maybe maybe between the two of us we can say that the Incal isn't something that as a work of entertainment that uh, it's not something that we love. Right. But it Mm -hmm. influenced a bunch of other stuff that we do love. Yeah. A lot of our favorite people probably were influenced by the Inco. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, I wanted to make a correction. I was, uh, I mentioned Salvador La Roca earlier and I had to look it up and uh, I got it wrong. I always get these two mixed up, but I was actually thinking of Simeon Bianchi. But oh, okay, yeah, they're they're pretty different people. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was I don't know why like I always get those guys mixed up, but uh, those yeah those guys always uh uh. Si- Simon Bianchi. Simon. Sim. Simeon. Sim. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, but I do feel his his artwork is definitely it's got that European feel to it. I don't know if it's necessarily he is Italian. I think. Oh okay. I was gonna say I don't know if it's if he's necessarily if if I can point to anything of his that's directly uh, reminds me of the Incal, but maybe it's just a uh, instinctual feeling or that I have. Yeah. 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 So where did you where would you say the story fell short for you, Albert? So I think having read the first forty eight uh pages of it, you know, that uh, or the first volume of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um I I would have to say that although the world is really interesting, uh there uh, the, the various types of creatures that inhabit the world are pretty unique. 
there's something about it that feels there's something about it that overall left me feeling unengaged and uh, and not very invested in it overall uh mm-hmm. one of the things that i noticed is this uh the main character of john defool mm-hmm. um he's he's a pretty one-dimensional character like um so we've we've referenced other similar uh comics and stories uh just now uh, we mentioned fifth element and heavy metal and i think in both those cases the main characters in both those stories are these kind of grungy uh film noir detective types you know mm-hmm. um you know, uh, like so. For those of you who who aren't necessarily familiar with that, it's usually like this kind of tough guy, uh, down on his luck sort of character that's super cynical, but deep down inside has a heart of gold or whatever. Like hard boiled. Hard boiled. Yeah. Like, is that a fairly accurate description? Is there anything I'm missing, Drew? Yeah, it's not necessarily universal for every noir hero, but yeah. I think it's fair to say that uh, stereotypical or maybe archetypical noir protagonist uh, would be described in such a manner. Okay. So it feels like John DeFool is sculpted in the vein of those guys, but there's very little character to him at all, uh, having read this. I he He really just feels like a device for us to uh move the move the inkowl around uh you know it, he's just a delivery device for this this inkowl inkowl entity and i like having read it i i can honestly say that he didn't really feel like a real person with any kind of motivations other than you know basic motivations like you know uh trying to survive trying to survive trying to get paid like i didn't care about him at all yeah yeah so i i would say that 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 one aspect of it made it hard to i guess you could say since i didn't care about him it made me less inclined to care about the story overall you know yeah yeah, I can agree with that. It was a story where the main character kind of felt like maybe because he's supposed to be an everyman, he wasn't there wasn't really too much of him too much about him that was distinct. Yeah. He was kind of a character that was maybe intended to be kind of a blank slate so that the reader could relate to him. Maybe that's just a different style of storytelling. Yeah. But, but, uh, he might have been too much of a blank slate. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, f- I feel like that's the kind of thing that I could work in a, in a video game. Like, if you're playing a, a video game and your main character is kind of a blank slate, it kind of works because you're using your imagination to control that avatar in the yeah. world of the game. And it fills the gaps for you through your actions, right? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. But in reading a story, it it kind of uh comes across in a different manner just cuz Yeah. Yeah. 
it, it doesn't have that same level of like interactivity yeah exactly you kind of expect the main character to i guess just be more distinctive somehow like yeah there there's a there's a chance that the most memorable thing about this character is his name <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> right like it just didn't feel like he he it didn't feel like he had a family it didn't feel like he felt any emotions other than you know not wanting to be hungry and not wanting to be poor <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know yeah. <laughs> that's pretty uh i guess overall that's pretty meaningless to me um and i guess in addition to to just the uninteresting uh main uh main character addition uh, i guess the unintentional effect of that is that the plot itself wasn't necessarily one that was all too exciting for me either yeah so in so i gave that brief description of the plot earlier in the podcast and it's basically it's it's really not something that i've it's not a it's not a super unique idea right it's Mm -hmm. basically a guy comes across this um mcguffin whatever this uh powerful artifact or thingamadoodle um, (laughs) happens to be and because he has it because it happens to fall into his lap now everybody is chasing him and again he has the ability now that he has this thing to do great harm or to do great good and that's in short the story and i guess not that i have anything against that plot in and of itself but in order for that plot to work i need all of those other elements to make me more invested in that plot to make me believe in that plot right so i need the main character to be interesting or more interesting and heck i need the surrounding characters uh to fill those gaps and fill those interactions so that i'm interested in the world aside from the visual aspect of it right yeah yeah do you think that those criticisms would be things that you could overlook if you had continued reading the story? Like if you had moved on to volume two or three, or even read some of the other books that are set in the world of the Inkle, because Jodorowsky did end up doing like a bunch of other comics set in the world. Like there's the, I think before the Inkle, after, final Inkle, the Meta Barons, yeah. the Techno Priest, like there's a whole bunch of stuff that arose out of this comic. Yeah, so the funny thing is, um, this being my first exposure to it, unfortunately, in and of itself, if I had to base my uh, willingness to read it on this first initial exposure to it, it's I'm hard pressed to say that this reading of it by itself is gonna motivate me to read the rest of it just by the very virtue of it yeah but but 
I mean, I do want to read it because, again, we 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 take the medium of comics seriously here, and I want to be able to assess it based on a a full and comprehensive knowledge of it or or exposure to it, right? Yeah. Before I I make any complete and final judgments on it but that being said uh yeah just based on this reading this first one it, i i if i had to be perfectly honest i i'm i couldn't say that i am rushing to read more of it anytime soon <laughs> you yeah know? yeah that's understandable it, yeah do you think that one of the reasons why maybe it didn't engage you as the plot didn't engage you as much was because so many other stories that came out in the years since that also have a similar plot kind of affected your experience. Like you were already, you'd already kind of seen the things that were influenced by the Inkle and maybe, yeah, you know how, when you see something that's influenced by the original work, it's hard to it can be tough to go back shake off yeah and go go backwards in time and and look yeah. at the originator which may which may not always be as complicated or as intricate as yeah. the thing that's derivative because the thing that is derivative usually has to add in a little bit more layers of complexity in order yeah. to set itself apart from the original yeah well, I mean that's the uh the downside of being the first thing to break that mold, right? Is mm-hmm. that what happens is uh prior to the existence of of Vinkal, maybe we didn't see anything quite like it. And as a result, it opened the floodgates for all these other creators to create something uh based off based on the foundation that the Inkal had uh set for itself right so Mm -hmm. as a result we see people who took the the kernel of the ideas in the ink call and they found a way to tweak it and uh inject complexity and depth and uh additional just elements to make it more interesting or uh more fully flushed out so Mm -hmm. I, I do think that that's a possibility, and um, maybe it's not quite fair to uh, to. Well, I mean, like, keep in mind, I'm not anything that I have to say about the Incal isn't necessarily said with like malice or anything like that. Like, I I've read a lot of comics that I do hate, and I have no problem saying that I hate. Them. <laughs> and the Incal and the Incal isn't isn't one of those. I don't hate it. Uh, uh, yeah, but. Uh, yeah, so again, that being said, like, I don't look at the stuff that came after it and, you know, retroactively look at the Inkal and say, why couldn't this be, uh, you know, the fifth element? Yeah, of course not. Like, that would be silly. It would. So I, I have enough self-awareness to look at the Inkal as its own thing and compare it against itself, you know, and I recognize it's like historical value. For sure. Yeah. 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 And even I guess another thing I just thought of while you mentioned the historical value was how even if I were to look at this as just 
um, a book that's notable for its all-time historical significance, I still think it's it's like definitely and objectively better than a lot of other historically significant comics. Like if mm. if I were to to look at something like let's say Spawn number one <laughs> being a significant comic because it was Spawn number one, yeah, you know, like there's no real question what's the better comic you know yeah <laughs> like yeah. obviously yeah <laughs> so it it's yeah I, I i'm with you man it's like the the feelings that i get from this comic from the inkle volume one even though it, it's not my favorite thing i still have a lot of regard for it like i can yeah i can appreciate it for what it is for the artwork and for its uh, its impact. Yeah. And just all the significance of it, you know, like everything that's associated with the importance of the Inkle and how it's influenced generations upon generations of artists, not just, not just European artists, but American artists, even Japanese artists. Yeah. You know, this is, a worldwide impact kind of comic yeah and it's it's different from something that's just notable for being you know top selling or or popular because it's not just a popular or high selling comic it's it actually is like a really good classic piece of work you know it, it's rightfully regarded as a classic whereas something like spawn number one or i don't know i I feel like it's too easy to to pick on spawn or something (laughs) like that but um i don't know what's another random 80s comic that was pretty popular like the new teen titans yeah i was gonna say dark phoenix saga (laughs) or dark phoenix saga Yeah. yeah like those are those are things i can recognize and acknowledge for their historical impact yeah but i don't necessarily think that they're particularly good let alone great comics right right so yeah yeah that, that's what sets the inkle apart like it's something where as somebody who's read a ton of comics even though it didn't emotionally resonate with me yeah from an intellectual standpoint just mentally reading it i was mentally engaged i was i was interested in looking at it from maybe a student's perspective you know and it's not even like i'm an artist because i can't draw worth crap but i I still like to understand things like pacing and timing and Mm -hmm. framing and just being able to look at the comic from the that perspective and, and trying to see like what makes this work as a unit of comic book storytelling it's still really fascinating yeah i think I might even have a shorter just description for how I feel about it, which would be, I might not like it, but I respect it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, And it's not like I dislike it. I just don't necessarily love it. Yeah. 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 Uh, Yeah. I think we're, we're like-minded on this. But, but here's the other thing, man. I think if, there's a chance that if I read more of it, like if I read the rest of the Inkle, maybe 
it wouldn't change my feelings on volume one, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Or, like, I'm also open this to is the, just the first volume. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's much longer than just one volume. I think it was like what six 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 or eight volumes or something like that. Yeah. But the the other thing is that I'm I'm open to somebody maybe describing it to me or explaining to me like what they found um, in the inkle that that really worked for them. You know, like I'm. It's a comic that I would be interested in hearing other people talk about and discuss, just so I could maybe maybe they'll en- enlighten me or help me see something that I didn't see the first time I read it. Yeah, no, I I get that. You know, it's when we were discussing like some of the stylistic flourishes that didn't hit with us. One of the things that I wanted to mention was that. I think it might be a matter of the fact that this is a European comic and they do have different sensibilities. So there are behaviors and interactions that might not necessarily land with me or that I might find uh, bewildering or detached. Uh, Yeah, that, that might leave me feeling somewhat lacking in terms of my ability to believe in these characters and how they interact in, with with the world but now that you mention it if if someone who was a true fan of this comic was describing it to me and if they could describe to me what exactly they felt or saw in it that i guess inspired them uh, in their reading of it, I, I'd be interested in that too, because uh, it would give me, it could give me the context that I need to yeah. to connect with this on the emotional level that I need to connect with it in order to like truly enjoy it, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a comic that's rich enough to warrant further discussion with fans of the comic, you know. Yeah. Whereas I think if I talk to a fan of Spawn number one, I don't think I would really get much out of it. Yeah, I mean, I what I'd probably end up getting out of it is a lot of steps. Oh, because I'd have to be walking very quickly away from that person. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you get some exercise. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I guess there's value in that. There's totally value in that. Yeah. And (laughs) it doesn't make Spawn valuable, but. (laughs) (laughs) It teaches me who to avoid in life. (laughs) Stay away from the diehard Spawn fanboy. (laughs) That's, uh, yeah, probably generally a good rule of thumb to follow. Yeah, I imagine that's good advice. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so neither of us felt pumped to read volume two right away it seems like yeah but i think i think it is something that i would read at some point like i i have the rest of it digitally i bought a, a humanoids bundle uh last year during the pandemic so i've got not only the inkle but i think i also have before the Inkle, and maybe even Final Inkle, I've yeah. got Techno Priest, 
we got the Meta Barons too. The I'm Meta Barons, sure. yeah. Like I'm, we've got a ton of this stuff. Uh, I might need to look up, look up uh, a reading order or something, or at least just figure out the chronological publication date of all these, so I could figure out the, the optimal way to read them. But I, I do have access to them since I since I own them. I just have to get around to reading them. But it's it's one of those, yeah, like we were saying, um, we didn't really feel like we were frothing at the mouth to jump straight into volume two. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't want our listeners to think that we're being harsh on it or anything. It's just an honest assessment. You know? Yeah, I mean, we both have so many other comics that we're reading. Yeah, that it it's it's hard to just start reading something else that we hadn't uh, really planned to read. You know? Yeah. Because because the stuff that we talk about for our podcast, that's not the only thing that we read. Yeah. You know, like yeah, like we're and we're in the midst of reading all sorts of other series exactly. and and runs that we've collected. Um, exactly or bought recently and we're, we both have like these massive unread piles of stuff that we've that we yeah. bought over the past more than a year but probably the past couple years yeah and on yeah. top of that we've got tons of stuff that we borrow from the library that we need yeah. to get through and then we have a lot of digital comics that we've bought <laughs> over the yeah. past year so you know it's like every every day we read something and yeah. maybe volume two, the day for volume two might not come for, you know, a little a little while, maybe a few months or maybe even years down the line. But at, at some point, I do want to read the next volume. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't want to ever be in a position where I feel like reading is uh, work. So I don't want to to put myself in a position where I'm forcing myself to read anything that I don't want to read or that I'm not in the mood to read. What if you got paid to read and it uh, literally became work? Well, I mean, that's different. Uh, like, like, let, let's say, let's say somewhere out there, somewhere out there, there's a listener that really, really wants Albert to read volume two and he's willing <laughs> to pay money for you to read it. So we can talk about it on our podcast. Uh, I'll have to see how much money they're willing to pay and just how fervently they <laughs> want that to, to be the case. And I will weigh that against my personal uh, self-interest. What if we start a Kickstarter for you to do <laughs> a live on the podcast dramatic reading of Volume 2 in your 1920s Chicago gangster voice? Uh, again, I will have to uh, take that into consideration. I make no promises about that sort of thing. <laughs> Man. What if the woman of your dreams said that she would marry you if you read volume two? Oh, then I would totally do that. That, okay. that would be worth it. <laughs> okay. Okay. I would debase myself for that. <laughs> Oh, man. So it sounds like we just have to find a woman that will make you willing to debase yourself. <laughs> oh, wow. You hear that, guys? Message us if you, <laughs> if you can make this happen. <laughs> <laughs>
would you say do you, would you say you have any uh, recommendations that you could make for anyone who's interested in reading something similar to the Incal? Incal. How are you? How do you pronounce it? I don't know. I keep going back and forth between Incal and Incal. Okay, because I've just been calling it Incal, but I don't know which one's right either. <laughs> I don't know French, man. I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing Jodorowsky's name correctly. I I know we're just we're we're grasping and groping blindly in the darkness and we're just hoping that any of it is right. So I'll tell you what, if any of our listeners happen to know French and wish to uh, correct us, then by all means DM us on our Instagram to let us know so that you could educate these two fools. Yeah, yeah. I only know how to speak American. Yeah, and I barely do that well. <laughs> Yeah, it's like what you were saying earlier about Willie Shakespeare, man. <laughs> we is, we am, we do's work. <laughs> we does work. There you go. Uh, but uh, yeah, you were saying recommendations for people who enjoy the Inkle. I mean, I guess I'd probably have to say check out Volume 2, even though that'd be hypocritical. <laughs> I haven't read Volume 2. But... Other than the obvious, I'd probably also say check out some more Mobius stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of Mobius stuff that I haven't read, but just from looking up his work uh, and seeing his other books, you know, perusing them whenever I'm at a at a store, or just looking at his works uh, or samples of his work online. Like he does a lot of great, he did a lot of great stuff, and all of his comics were really fun just to look at. And if I were to pick one Mobius book that I have read in in its entirety that I could recommend, I'd probably just go with Silver Surfer Parable, which was written by Stan Lee. Yeah, it's probably one of Stan Lee's best works as a writer for sure. And Mobius. He kills on that one, man. He does a great piece of comics just creating this, I don't even, I mean, I, I was going to say an accompaniment to Stan Lee's preachy text, but I don't want to do a disservice to either of them. I mean, I would just recommend Silver Surfer Parable because it, it's pretty short, to, so it doesn't take long to read, but it's, it's something that you can read multiple times and get something out of it because the artwork is super intricate. He's got a really Mobius just has a really elegant line and a really uh, elegant uh, way of drawing figures, and that's pretty much how I would always imagine or picture the Silver Surfer in my mind because he is a uh, probably the most noble superhero character there is. But he also Mobius also draws alien stuff really well too. So the fact that the surfer is technically an alien and uh, Galactus is in the story, you know, it, it's larger than life kind of stuff going on. The story itself stands out because Silver Surfer Parable is about responsibility and about it's, I guess, philosophically, I'd probably point to it as something that's very humanistic, which isn't necessarily which is not uh, a philosophy that I subscribe to, but as a story, I think it 
it's really effective and it works because it it taps into uh, the surfer as something that encourages humanity to stand on its own rather than look to something outside of themselves for enablement because the story the plot is about galactus coming to earth and instead of destroying the earth he wants the people of earth to basically just worship him as god Mm. so it's kind of a twist on the traditional galactus tale and the surfer is the one that's trying to to lead the people uh you know out of that mentality where the most powerful thing out there is the thing to follow and he's just yeah it it it, it just works on multiple levels right right so it, it's it's a fun story just as a silver surfer story but it's also something that that uh i don't know i think i think it's inspirational and if if you're more inclined towards a humanistic standpoint then it's definitely something where the parable itself uh will connect with you as a yeah. reader yeah yeah it's it's not something that i've ever read but i feel like very much like the inkal it's something that gets a lot of regard and and I recognize it because of that, you know, uh, just because other, um, like, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know where it ranks in terms of like the most, uh, influential Marvel comics of all time. Uh, mm-hmm. but I feel like it's, it's usually on that list somewhere, right? Maybe not necessarily at the top, but it's, it's recognized nonetheless, right? Yeah. Like it, on most it, according to the experts, it still wasn't one of the top 25 Marvel comics of all time. <laughs> but I have but a it feeling could... it'd probably be at least in the top 50, right? Exactly, exactly, right? <laughs> so so that's that's where my like level of familiar familiarity with it comes in. Um but, you know, I've I've heard you talk about it on on several occasions and it's something that i'm definitely curious to check out when if if and when i ever get my hands on it you know yeah it was originally published in the 80s under the epic imprint and it was only two issues so it's short man yeah and marvel recently or maybe not recent but like within the past year uh reprinted it so you can find it in in a trade paperback I think they even made like a gigantic hardcover version of it. Yeah, what are those called? The they're not the artist editions, are they? Or the no, I I can't remember off the top of my head. There's also uh the digital editions on Comixology if, if yeah. you want want it cheap. Yeah, I'll I'll definitely look into those. <laughs> um, actually, I thought about it. Hoopla might even have it, so I might check the SFPL library online. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. if that all fails, you can always borrow my copy. There we go. <laughs> Lesson here, kids. Always make friends who have comics. <laughs> yeah. When I get married, I don't want my wife to love me for who I am. I want her to love me for my comic book collection. That's the most distinguishing trait about me. So if you're a single lady out there who's interested in a massive comic book collection, hit me up. 
is that what this uh, podcast is devolving into? <laughs> oh, man. Well, I figure if you're going to debase yourself, I might as well join you. <laughs> uh, sounds good. Sounds good. Um, what about you, man? Do you have any recommendations? Uh... So I'm just going to put this on here, even though I, I, for the life of me, can't explain why, like, what the connection is uh, or why I would recommend it. But after reading that first um, volume of Incal, there was something about it that made me think of Zenith by uh, Grant Morrison and Steve Yeowell. Like... Maybe it was just the quirkiness of the the characters or like just the bizarreness of uh, the various creatures and, and like how they interact in that world. Mm-hmm. But there was something of that note in Zenith, I think, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think Zenith is probably a more entertaining comic for me to read personally. But it there was still something about it that still felt like uh, there might have been some connective tissue. Like I, I again, I I can't for the life of me say like make that direct connection, and I don't know why like my my instincts were to go there. But yeah, um, it's just I'm I'm trying to look for a way to describe zenith right now but from what i remember it's it's a story about like a 19 well i, I don't remember the specific date but it's it's basically grant morrison doing his early version of just a superhero epic from what i remember yeah uh it's uh, Zenith is the name of a superhero uh, in in their world, and he's kind of their, I guess, like their Superman, you know. And you, over the course of, I believe it's like four volumes, you follow him on uh, these various adventures that culminate in just a a universe-wide spanning uh, galactic battle, from what I remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 the short version of it, but uh, yeah, uh, that's that's what I would... One of my recommendations. Um, the other recommendation uh, that I would make is... So we mentioned how uh, John DeFool in the story is... Is is basically this prototypical film noir type of character, or yeah, uh, film noir slash private eye type of character. And the first thing, one of the the other things that I was, um, one of the first things that I was referencing in my mind as I was reading the Incal was Hellblazer uh, from DC Comics. Um, and that story, that's Vertigo, or Vertigo, com- uh, Vertigo by DC. Um, and the thing about those comics are, well, there's how many issues of that, Drew? 
the Vertigo run was 300 issues, I believe. Yeah, so it's a very long series, and it's been written by a whole bunch of different uh, writers, but most, if not all of them, have been just spot on, you know? Like, just... It, it's just been one of the most consistently good comics for the longest period of time. And it follows uh, John Constantine, who is this... He's not quite a warlock. He's a guy that dabbles in magic, and he often gets himself into trouble. But he uses his wits and his... um, I don't know how to describe it, but his bastard dumb... I don't know what the word is. (laughs) Uh, He's a con man. He's a con... His trickery, okay? His trickery. So he uses his his wits and his trickery and his uh, knowledge of magic to get him out of trouble and those are the kinds of stories that you're generally getting from John Constantine and and yeah so I, I feel like in terms of a comparison to him to John DeFool, I feel like they're aiming for the same type of archetype but Hellblazer is probably the more personally satisfying Character. read huh Oh. Well, yeah, I guess he's he's the... Yeah, no, you're right. I, I do think he's probably the more... So we mentioned how John DeFool in The Incal wasn't necessarily someone who felt fully flushed out as a character. And John Constantine in Hellblazer definitely has more depth to him. So by that measure, I would recommend Hellblazer if you're looking for something similar or in the same vein as The Incal. Mhm. Mhm. Do you have any other recommendations, Drew? Yeah, my final recommendation would be Starlight by Mark Miller and Goran Parlov. So this was a six-issue miniseries published by Image Comics, uh, I think 2014. And the reason why I would recommend this is because this is a comic in which Goran Parlov's art is heavily influenced by Mobius. Like you can definitely see the Mobius influence in the way he draws vistas, his his elegant characters. Uh, the line work is very reminiscent of Mobius. All the details in the backgrounds and things like things of that nature. It's just very reminiscent of Mobius's work from a visual standpoint. I would also say that Mark Miller. I know. He's on record as having a great deal of praise and love and respect for the Inco. And out of everything I've ever read from Mark Miller, Starlight is definitely the thing that easily stands out as something influenced by Mobius and Jodorowsky. It's it's a story. The story might not necessarily be like the Inco. The, the story in Starlight is about this guy he's kind of like a like a flash uh flash gordon type of character like one mm. of those old school pulp heroes like a guy that goes into space and goes on adventures and saves people it's about a guy like that except he's way past his prime he's like he's a senior citizen at this point you know <laughs> retired and he's yeah he's an old man he's got adult yeah. kids that have their own 
kids, so he's a grandpa. Yeah. But it's about him in his later years where when he was young, he had gone on all these adventures, but at some point those adventures stopped and he had his family, raised his kids until they were adults and grew old. And now uh, the story starts with his wife having passed away and his kids, none of his kids believed all his stories about him being the space hero who saved the universe in the past, you know, like they just think that's dad just being silly, you know, like he's I can't just a believe... kooky old man. Yeah. It's like, that was funny when he was telling us those stories when we were kids, but we're adults now. What's wrong with him? You know? Yeah. Yeah. He's still like living in this fantasy fantasy world, but starlight is about this character uh, going on one final adventure to save the universe one more time. And it's uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's like, surprisingly genuine and touching you know when you when it comes to a lot of mark miller comics i think he he's known for for uh you know shock value and 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 being mean or or funny and things like that but this was something that surprised me because it was so sincere like there i hope that's not really a spoiler but it's something where i felt like mark miller if he channeled more of this more often maybe people wouldn't find him so um, divisive, you know? Mm. He's kind of a polarizing writer. You know, we we had a whole episode last year where we talked about all this stuff, and I'm pretty sure I talked about Starlight. But, uh, yeah, I would definitely recommend it if you're someone who wants to check out some comics that are clearly influenced by the work of Mobius. Like, there's just so many other artists that, whose work is influenced by Mobius. Like an, the other guy that I, I was thinking of that I felt like I had to mention was Jose Ledron. Mm. Like he's, he's another dude, man. Um, like his, his art style has, his art style has changed over the years. Like when I first discovered his work back in, uh, when he did cable from the late nineties, he was channeling straight up Jack Kirby. But in some of those issues too, if you look closely, you can see a Mobius influence in them. And he would end up, uh, you know, later later on, he would, as his career progressed, he would end up doing Final Inkle with Alejandro Jodorowsky. And he also did some other Jodorowsky comics. Like, I borrowed them from the library about a year ago, but he did something called Sons of El Topo, which oh. was, you know, it's that's something that is his... Uh, Ladron's current style but i think you can if you look at his work he's he's definitely got his own distinct style but you can probably still see like some hints and influences from mobius in it too right right yeah i'm looking at his stuff right now it's it's good looking stuff man it's just fun to look at yeah i love Ladron. well any final thoughts or comments before we wrap things up no, I uh, I think we we covered it. I'm I'm personally satisfied by what we had to say. Uh, you know, if you guys have any questions uh, or, or uh, thoughts on the Inkal or Mobius, um, you know, by all means, message us. So, you know, like we mentioned in the podcast, we'd be interested in hearing from you if you guys have any thoughts that would that could 
enlighten our perspective on the comic we'd be more than happy to to hear it yeah yeah exactly it's it's not like a challenge to people but i i'm genuinely <laughs> interested in in someone illuminating this comic you know because it, it is a comic face that... us you coward <laughs> we dare you we are there any men amongst you <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things where I, I I think deep down I wanted to like this more than I actually did, you know? Yeah. No, I think I, I if, get what you mean, for sure. Yeah, and I think if somebody out there who did like this a lot could illuminate the things that brought the Inkle to life for them, like, I would I would definitely be interested in, in hearing that. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, next week, just a heads up for the next book that we're going to read. We're going to read a manga this time. So it's going to be Space Brothers Volume 1 by Chuyo Koyama. Space Brothers Volume 1, which uh, there's, a, there's a pretty long anime based on the manga. I've never watched the anime. I've never read the manga. So this is going to be a uh, first time for me. Yep, same here. But... It'll be, uh, we're going to delve into a completely different uh, section of comics, and uh, it'll be a good time. It'll be a good time. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Between the Gutters. We are signing off. Peace out. Peace out. <laughs>